0: Chapter 21 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21 El Gran Chaco. On the night of the 18th of June, as we lay at anchor under the bank, we heard the noise of a chain rattling through hawse pipes, and on looking up, found that a downward bound schooner had come to anchor close to us. The captain and pilot happened to be friends of Don Juan, honest Genoese sailors, so they came on board of us for an hour or so. And the merry concert, as is the pleasant custom of the Parana on such occasions, was improvised. Most of these Genoese and Neapolitan mariners have rich voices and know how to use them. All seem to have an inexhaustible repertoire in their heads of sea songs, Venetian gondola chants, and operatic selections. So it is really very good fun to bring up, when possible, alongside one of these goletas. Don Juan and the other pilot talked a good deal of shop in the Genoese dialect, as is the custom of their class. How, on one voyage, he sailed from Rosario to Corrientes in so many days, how, on another, he scraped such a bank, and so on. The skipper, of the schooner, had a very nasty scar on his forehead, Don Juan, who knew the history of it, begged him to narrate it to us, which he did as follows. Five years ago, having saved a considerable sum as captain of river vessels, I purchased a fine new schooner of 100 tons, built of hard Paraguayan wood. My first voyage was to have been to Corrientes for a cargo of oranges. I left the boca, hopefully enough, being now for the first time owner as well as captain of my vessel— All went well till we had been about a month out. Then, being becalmed, we brought up along the Chaco Bank not far from Goya. It was a hot and lazy day. All hands were below or lying about the deck asleep, except the cook who was preparing the dinner outside the galley. Of a sudden, as I was lying in my cabin, I heard such a terrible yell as I have never heard before or since. I rushed on deck, and there I saw a scene whose every detail seems to have been instantaneously photographed on the back of my eyes, and there to have remained ever since, for I have only to close my eyes to see it all again. The cook lay dead on his face, with an arrow in his back. There were about twenty Indians on deck, who had already killed four of my six men, probably even before they had awakened from their sleep. On seeing me, one struck me with his lance on the head, severely wounding, but luckily not stunning me. I leapt into our canoe, whose painter that moment became, I think, miraculously unfastened, and with a shower of arrows following me, drifted down with the tide. Not having a boat with which to follow me, they let me go. I then fainted away and was picked up by a schooner later on. Other schooners reported having found my vessel at anchor. On boarding her, the sailors beheld a horrid spectacle. My murdered crew lay naked on the deck, hacked in a thousand places, fearfully mutilated. The Indians had taken away all that could be of any use to them. The sails, fittings, and other property, useless to them, they had cut up or burnt, venting their rage on all they came across, as is their custom." So here I am once more, a poor river captain on another's vessel, with all my savings of years lost. Such disasters have frequently happened to river craft that moor to the trees on the Chaco shore, and carelessly keep no proper watch. But the Indians are not alone responsible for these outrages. Outlaw gauchos, runaway criminals, and other renegade whites find too easy an escape from justice by crossing the river to the Indian Chaco, where pursuit is quite impossible. These men are a hundred times more dangerous than the maligned Indian. By the superiority of race, they become caciques and leaders of the aboriginal tribes and urge them on to the raids and piratical atrocities that are the terror of the frontiers and the river. On the night of the 19th of June, we came to an anchor off the little town of La Paz, which is built upon the Entre Rios Barranca, here, though 700 miles from its mouth, the river seems to preserve its volume undiminished. To a vessel anchored in the Paraná, near La Paz, the horizon, both before and behind, is a shoreless stretch of water. On the morrow, we went on shore to lay in necessary stores wine, meat at three half pence a pound, pumpkins, beans, and the like. The river being flooded, the butcher shop on the beach was underwater, so we were able to row right inside it to buy our beef, which was highly convenient. We also purchased a quantity of coarse salt for purposes of barter, for this is a valuable commodity higher up the river, and the inhabitants are very glad to exchange eggs, cassava, and other produce for a few handfuls of it. As is usual, after the prevalence of this wind for some days, the pompero now gradually died away. The cloudy skies and bracing weather that accompany it disappeared, and we lay at anchor some fifteen miles above La Paz for several sultry cloudless days, during which time light northerly winds alternated with calms. We were anchored close to the Chaco shore, here covered with a fine forest, but the trees were joined together with such a strong and close network of lianas and other parasites that, to walk into the country— even with the aid of a machete wherewith to cut away, was quite impossible. We did manage, after considerable labor, to clear a small space alongside the falcon with our hatchets and cutlasses, and on this we kept a tremendous fire burning during our stay, doing all our cooking on shore. As there was no game to be found hereabouts, we employed our time in cutting an abundance of fuel sufficient for a month and stowing it in our vessel. We also boiled down the feet of the ox we had bought at La Paz and manufactured some excellent neatsfoot oil. Charcoal burning was another of our experiments, and in this we were also highly successful. How much I would have enjoyed this Robinson Crusoe life on the edge of a virgin forest when I was a boy. The water was deep right up to the bank, and the falcon was so close that we were able to jump off and onto the shore. Day after day passed without any change in the weather, and grumblings at our bad luck commenced once more to be heard. The impracticability of penetrating the forest prevented us from obtaining any sport, save a stray shot or two at a carpincho or lobo, a freshwater seal, as they swam by us, and we were anxious to progress to some more open country. It was not until the 27th of June that the wild pampero came up once more from the southwest. This strong gale drove us in a few hours into quite another and more tropical country. We hugged the Chaco shore, which soon assumed quite a different character. The land, no longer swampy, became slightly undulating, and the rich vegetation that covered it was not dense, but leaving open spaces and glades that afforded easy passage to man. Tall and graceful palms, the palmistes and vacuñas were here in thousands, bending to the strong breeze. Numberless little streams traversed the country, running down beds of golden sands to the Paraná. It was a lovely land, inhabited by tigers and other wild beasts alone, and untraversed, saved by the roving Indians who often come down here to fish. I went aloft so as to command a more extended view over this charming country. It offered many varieties of landscape. Forests of palm were succeeded by leagues of pompa grass and there were broad gleaming stretches of sand and lakes swarming with duck, a land after an Indian's own heart, I should imagine. This pampero had evidently blown us into a new climate, and new vegetation. We noticed, too, that its breadth was more mild and genial than it had been further down the river. Should the brave sou'wester but last for another twenty-four hours, we said, we would by that time reach the land of crocodiles and monkeys." It did not last 24 hours, but left us be calm this evening off the mouth of the riacho that leads to the town of Esquina. On the evening of the 28th, a light pampero sprang up, which carried us some 14 miles to the mouth of the riacho called Tala, on the Chaco side of the river. The next day, a regular gale was blowing from the southwest, so we joyfully prepared to get underway, anticipating a run of nearly a 100 miles before nightfall. We had weighed our anchor and were dropping out of the narrow mouth of the Riacho before tide and wind under bare poles, when a sudden squall from another direction struck us, and in a moment drove our vessel beam on to the shore. It was now seven o'clock, and for eight hours, until three in the afternoon, all hands were hard at work endeavoring to drag the vessel off again. It was of no use. She would not move, so firmly was her keel embedded. We had our big anchor out on splendid holding ground, but with every purchase at our command applied to the windlass, we could yet do nothing. There was a downwind-bound schooner at anchor close to us, waiting for a fair wind. Now, it is the good custom of the river craft always to assist each other under such circumstances as these, even though the one assisting loses considerable time by so doing. So the captain of this vessel, having first moved her further out in the river, put two anchors down, and then, taking a very stout warp to our bows, set all his men to work on his capstan. These schooners are specially provided with capstans of immense power, in view of their taking the ground, as they invariably do more or less frequently on each voyage. But the good fellows laboured in vain. The warp stretched and our timbers creaked with the strain, yet the Falcon would not budge. The only thing we could do now was to take our anchor out into the river again and keep a constant strain upon the chain, whereby in time the vessel would eat a channel out for itself. It was horribly annoying, however, to lose all this valuable wind in this way. Our pilot nearly cried with rage, and stamped about the deck, frequently exclaiming, If we had run on a bank under full canvas, I should not have minded so much. But under bare poles, to stick so fast? By putting a watch-tackle on to our capstan bar, we kept up a very considerable strain on our anchor, and by the afternoon the gale raised a sea that did more for us than all the labor of ourselves and the Goletta's crew— with all the capstans and tackles put together. For now the vessel rolled about till she had so loosened her hold in the mud that we were enabled to drag her off a few inches at a time toward the deep water. At last it was only her stern that held her, so, hoisting our heavy canoe onto the bowsprit end, we made her rise aft, and then, with a haul altogether on the watch-tackle, we floated her off. After these eight hours of constant hard work, we took three reefs in our mainsail, for the gale had increased rather than diminished in violence, and sailed a good eight knots an hour up the stream till nightfall, the pompero following us with its usual accompaniments of heavy rain, thunder, and lightning. The following day, the same southwester was blowing, but with more moderate force, so that we were enabled to shake our reefs out and set the spinnaker. After sailing some 20 miles, we came to a portion of the river where navigation is attended with considerable difficulties. The bed of the Paraná, here very broad, is filled with an accumulation of ever-shifting sands just covered with water. The channel across this, which rarely has more than 7 feet of water in it, winds considerably and often changes its position. Our pilot had been informed by a brother Practico who had recently sailed down that since the last crescente it was necessary to steer from a certain clump of trees, which is a well-known mark, to another clump right opposite on the other bank. However, there was some mistake about the direction, for we ran hard upon the sands right in the middle of the river. We let all sail fall on deck, lowered the canoe from the davits, and lost no time in getting out an anchor. But it was not till after three hours of work, as hard as that of the previous day, we got off and continued our voyage. We anchored this night off the Riacho of Caraguita, which is not far from the town of Goya. We were becalmed here throughout the whole of the first of July, so were enabled to go on shore and explore the country a while, which we now had not done for many days. On our right hand was now the province of Corrientes, a land of palm forests, swamps, and many lakes and rivers. On landing, we traversed a broad morass that lay between the river and a fine forest. We saw many alligators basking on the drier spots, but being only provided with shotguns could not kill any of them. On reaching the wood, we broke through the lianas and creepers, clambered over the fallen trees, and soon found ourselves surrounded by the veritable South American forest. No words can possibly convey any idea of the solemnity of these virgin wilds. The lower growth was of bamboo, wild coffee, dense lianas, and other plants, while above all, towered the ancient and gigantic trees that produced the most valuable hard cabinet wood of export. We were in the haunt of beasts of prey and carrion, Storks, eagles, and foul vultures flew over us with hoarse cries, parrots screamed, and hundreds of monkeys looked down on us with their human faces from the branches above. We saw many fresh footprints of tigers, and the lacerations on the trunks of trees showed where they had recently sharpened their claws. While lying at anchor here, we amused ourselves with some more exciting sport than usual. In the daytime, we succeeded in catching some dorados, a fish we had long been trying to hook in vain, and in the night we organized a general tiger-hunting expedition. I have already told how these Dorados would bite other fish we caught off our hooks. Now it was our turn. We happened to have some oranges on board, and these, the pilot declared, were the best possible bait for these voracious monsters. Acting in accordance with his instructions, we baited some large-sized hooks with half an orange each bending them on stout copper wire trebled. Even through this their sharp teeth would sometimes bite, and we would lose our hooks. In half an hour we caught one great big fellow, five feet long. We got him into the canoe. In his rage he bit the bulwark till his teeth nearly met in the stout wood. We passed a rope's end through his gills, and hauling him on deck, examined him at our leisure. The Dorado may be described as a gigantic goldfish. His shape is that of the little creature familiar to us in bowls at home, and his color is that of the outside of an orange, with a more reddish tint in places. His mouth is large and cruel like that of a shark, and I do not doubt that a full-grown Dorado could bite a man's arm off. We managed to catch three of these great fish this day, the smallest of which was three feet long. We cut them into strips, salted and sun-dried them, and found that their flesh was really most excellent eating. We lit a fire on shore, and extracted the oil out of one of these fish, which proved to be the very best material for preserving guns from rust I have ever tried. We found a spot on the shore so thickly covered with spoor and footprints of the tigers that it was evidently a favorite watering place of these animals. And not only that, but a fishing place also, for we saw the remains of Dorados lying about. The jaguar is a great fisherman. He crouches in the dense undergrowth by the river bank and deftly hooks up passing fish with his claw, somewhat in the manner of an English boy tickling trout. To secure some of the beautiful skins of the South American tiger was a great ambition of ours so we consulted how best to tempt the wild beasts to visit our neighborhood this night. We had nothing but salt beef on board now, and as this might not be to the taste of the monarch of the forest, I set forth in the canoe up a riacho to kill some of the shag that abound on the Paraná or any other animals that might be suitable for tiger bait. I shot as many black shag as was needful, wounded a carpincho, a beast we never could secure, though we wasted much powder and ball on him, and I was drifting back noiselessly with the oars on board when I heard a sound on the bank close to me that made my heart suddenly beat somewhat quicker. It was a loud breathing or snoring of some evidently large animal. I guided my canoe to the opposite side of the Riacho, here only about twelve feet broad, and quietly made it fast to the rushes. Then I loaded my rifle, which I had with me, and tried to make out who this gentleman enjoying his siesta might be. The jungle was so dense that this was impossible, and I thought it hardly prudent to force my way through and disturb his slumber. He might be of a choleric temper and object. So, not knowing what else to do, I fired straight at the point from whence the noise came, which could not have been much more than twenty feet from me, in the hopes of hitting him in some fatal spot. This may have been rather foolish, but I could not bring myself to go away without letting that conical bullet have its chance. The noise of the discharge, if nothing else, did disturb him, for it was followed by a howl of anger and surprise, and a sound of something crashing through the jungle. I forced my way through the canes to the spot where he had been lying. There was his bed, a large one too, and still hot with his body, but I could see no blood or other signs about to show me that my shot had taken effect. We cut open some shag and hung them, together with some Dorado flesh, on the branch of a tree some three feet from the ground and close to the watering place I have mentioned. At sunset, the forest resounded with a continuous and awe-inspiring din, the chorus of wild beasts terrible and exciting to one who hears it for the first time. The shriek of tiger and puma, the drum-like chatter of baboons, and strange and weird cries that we had never heard before. Jardine, Arnaud, and myself settled ourselves comfortably among the branches of three separate trees, each armed with rifle, revolver, and knife. We were so disposed as to be able to converge our fire on any animal that should come near our base. We remained perfectly noiseless in our respective trees for three hours. Then I imagine we began to consider our position ridiculous and our attempts at jaguar catching a vain amusement, but no one liked to speak first and suggest this. The wild beasts seemed now to have turned in, except one, who occasionally still disturbed the still night with a wild sardonic laugh, full of insanity and cruelty, the most blood curdling cry of the forest that no one would imagine to be uttered by a bird. Yet so it was, for this was the screech of the foul buzzard of South America. Four hours passed away, and we still remained on our perches, immobile and silent, when suddenly Arnod sneezed. The charm was broken. We burst into a simultaneous Homeric peal of laughter, and with no dissenting voice, moved an adjournment on board the falcon. The tigers never came that night, for the bait hung untouched in the morning. Had we possessed a live sheep or other animal to tie up as bait, we might have had better luck. On the morrow, the north wind was still blowing, so I was enabled to visit a large island covered with trees that was near our anchorage. I found it to be densely overgrown with bamboos, mangoes, coffee, and venerable quebrachos colorados, of whose hard red wood so heavy that it sinks in water like lead, the river schooners are constructed. Beautiful orchids or air plants in blossom hung from the trees like aerial gardens. Of these we tore down some and stuck them on our own rigging, where they flowered and throve for some months, so that the falcon presented quite an aesthetic appearance. On the soft soil of this island were the fresh marks of tigers and deer, but we did not come across the animals themselves. If we had only brought some dogs with us, I believe we should have found some good sport among the larger game. Not to have procured some at Buenos Aires was a great oversight on our part. This morning's bag was composed of two turkeys, two monkeys, some parrots, and an alligator or caiman. The turkeys and parrots were shot for the larder, the alligator and monkeys for their skins, though alligator's tails are esteemed as a delicacy in Paraguay. And a dish of young monkeys is not to be despised by anyone. End of chapter 21